All right, well, we thought it would be fun over the next four weeks to take all of you to the movies. And so during this message series, we'll be combining scenes from the big screen with some lesser-known folks in the Bible and kind of mushing them together and hearing what God has to say for us. Before we do that, let's go ahead and uh, pray for this message series and also for the holiday here. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you for this time, this, this summer vac- vacation we have and, and time to enjoy your creation, Lord. But also we just pray for this message series. We pray that uh, through these movies and through the, the characters in the Bible, we would hear the words you want us to hear and, and infuse those into our lives and to really step forward this after this four weeks here and really uh, make an impact for your kingdom. Lord, we also want to take a moment and just thank you for blessing us and our country. Lord, we know that on this day there's a lot of, um, of thoughts that go out in different directions and uh, there's been some obviously a difficult couple, couple years here, Lord. We just, we just thank you for having us in the palm of your hand. And so, Lord, as we think about things like the freedom that you provide, um, we just ask you to bless this country, bless its leaders, help them to make wise, godly decisions as they go forward uh, governing us and this world, Lord. But above all, we, we appreciate and love your son who gave us the ultimate freedom uh, from, from sin. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, you might not have seen, but we're kicking off this first series with the 2020 instant classic hit of The Greatest Showman. Now, before um, we get started, I just want to be up front with you. I don't really know how accurate the, the story is in real life, so please, no post-message criticisms of, hey, that wasn't really accurate, because let's just do me a favor. Take the movie as it is for the sake of this message. I'd appreciate that. But I want you to listen very closely to this plot synopsis of The Greatest Showman. So, so listen carefully. Here's how I think it goes. A special man with humble beginnings who's able to kind of see beyond the constraints and limitations of this evil world calls together a ragtag bit of misfits and they endeavor to change the world through love. Now, now is it just me or does that sound a little familiar in the Christian context, right? That plot's the synopsis, okay? Uh, so if you'll go ahead and turn in your Bibles or click in your Bibles to Mark chapter 5, that's our, our text for today, and the story of Jairus and the, and, and the woman. And you'll definitely notice how uh, if the writers of The Greatest Showman didn't sort of have uh, Jesus in the back of their minds, it's kind of hard to believe. And I think he might have, they might have even had this specific story uh, in their thoughts as they wrote the movie. But before we dive in, let's recognize that there's no great all-time movie without first a great all-time story written by someone, a great author. And the Gospel writer of Mark is no exception. We first learn about Mark in Acts chapter 12. Now, he's the son of Mary. She's a leading woman in Jerusalem. And uh, Mark's family is shown to be both financially and spiritual uh, supporters of Jesus and his ministry at the end in Jerusalem and also of the early church in Acts. Mary and Mark's house is the meeting place for the early church. If you look in the Bible, you'll see that uh, they supplied, we believe they supplied the upper room for Jesus and his disciples to have the Last Supper. And it's where Peter goes after he's miraculously released from prison. And it's also where Paul and Mark's cousin Barnabas kind of launch off on their first missionary journey. And if you know, they take Mark with him. So Mark grew up in a house that is the epicenter. It's the center of this burgeoning young church. And we also get a little early insight into who Mark is. He's the only gospel writer that talks about this story of this young man in the Garden of Gethsemane 
who barely escapes with his life as the soldiers arrest Jesus. You see, Mark, we believe it's Mark, he kind of, as a young teenager, jumped out of bed in the middle of the night in his pajamas, went down, followed Jesus and the disciples to see what was going on, kind of getting all the action. And then he gets caught up in the arrest and barely escapes, and he kind of has a wardrobe malfunction, which you could read about in Mark chapter 14. So you see that Mark is impressionable, he's curious, he's eager, and he's hungry for God. Mark then goes on for the rest of his life to act as a missionary and a support role for Peter and Paul in their endeavors. As a matter of fact, he's with Peter and Paul at the end of both of their lives at the hands of Rome. And it is at this moment where Mark begins to put pen to paper. His dedication and faith compel him to record the experiences, the stories, the thoughts of Peter and put them down on paper. So at my age, about 30 years after Jesus' resurrection, Mark begins drafting the first New Testament gospel, the book, of course, with his name. And Mark is so, therefore, the first New Testament's great storyteller. So much so that actually uh, Matthew uh, takes about 90% of Mark and includes it in his gospel, and Luke takes about 50% and includes Mark's material in his gospel. So Mark's the first writer, and if you read his New Testament, it's sort of, you know, it's it's basic, it's simple, it's factual, it's to the point. Matthew and Mark then take, I mean, Matthew and Luke take Mark's stories, they embellish it, they add information to it from other things, they they know about other things, they even give it a different perspective. They add a lot of different material to Mark, except for Mark chapter 5. In Mark chapter 5, Matthew actually truncates the story, makes it shorter. Luke leaves it pretty much exactly as Mark wrote it. Why? Got me thinking, why, what is so special about this story that Mark, that Mark included in his gospel? And I think it's because it was a very special event in the life of Peter. You see, of the hundreds, if not thousands, of miraculous things that Peter saw over those three years with Jesus, what is so special about this episode, which recorded at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. Why does God, through Peter and Mark in chapter five, pick this precise moment in history to record for all time a story whose message we can hear today? You know, it's also a very unique story. It's one of the few, if only one I'm aware of, where two of Jesus' miracles are sort of intersected in a very unique and special way. What is, uh, what are Peter and Mark trying to tell us here? What is God trying to tell us? Okay, so hopefully I've now set the scene. Let's, let's see how this biblical movie of Mark chapter 5 plays out, shall we? So Jesus has just moved his life and ministry to the bright lights in the big city of Capernaum, right there on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Kind of like New York City and I don't know, oh, the 1830s? Now Capernaum is where Peter and his family live. Capernaum is also where the four disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, operate their fishing business together. And Capernaum is where Jesus and his ragtag bunch of misfits set up shop. They go to Capernaum and they, it's the headquarters of their new business, the business of fishing for men. And it is here, just like in the beginning of P.T. Barnum's career, that Jesus' popularity just begins to skyrocket. It just takes off. He is getting noticed, he's drawing crowds because he's doing some amazing, miraculous, wonderful, inspiring things. But the world, they're not quite sure about this Jesus guy just yet. 
I mean, after all, isn't he this nobody from Nowheresville, the son of a carpenter from, what was that town again? Oh, yeah, Nazareth, right? Yet this guy, Jesus, man, he, he speaks with one of authority, with passion, with fire. He's preaching a gospel of redemption, of love. He's preaching a gospel of equality and justice. He's, his preaching is, it's, it's, it's fire, it's freedom, it's flood and open. It's a preacher in the pulpit and your blind devotion. Break, something's breaking at the brick of every wall. It's holding all that you know. So tell me, do you want to go where they're covered in all the color lights, where the runaways are running the night, impossible comes true, it's taking over you. Oh, this is the greatest show. Well, it was a musical after all, wasn't it? I mean, yeah. yeah. But seriously, nobody in Galilee has ever seen something like this before. Jesus is a center attraction, and not because he's got some cheap parlor tricks or funny illusions. No, no, this man is truly a wonder to behold. And everyone wants a ticket to the show, including a man named Jairus. Now remember, Capernaum is a big, big capital city. It's kind of like the capital of the Galilee region. And Jairus in the Bible says he's the leader of the local synagogue. Now just to be clear, what that means is the title given to him is not a religious leader. He's not like a rabbi or a scribe or Pharisee. No, no, he's actually more of like an administrator, a coordinator of the synagogue. He's in charge of it all. See, the synagogue is not just a church. It's really the, the center of Jewish life in Capernaum. Everybody's there every day. Yeah, they hold services there on the Sabbath, but really it is the absolute center of Jewish life in Capernaum. Everything happens there, and Jairus is the man in charge. He's at the top of the social ladder. He's a major player, a mover and a shaker. He's wealthy. He's the elite. Jairus is the ruling class. Matter of fact, he sets the rules of the game, and he calls the shots. Jairus is the upper crust. He knows his place, and he knows yours, and he knows where Jesus and his disciples stand. And I can kind of hear Jairus now. Okay, my friend, you want to cut me in? Well, I have to tell you, but it just won't happen. So thanks, but no, I think I'm good to go because I quite enjoy the life you say I'm trapped in. Now I admire you and that whole show you do. You're onto something, really it's something. But I live among the swells and we don't pick up peanut shells. I'll have to leave that up to you. You know, it's funny. Jairus' life situation is like exactly that of Philip Carlyle in the movie The Greatest Showman. He's young, he's rich, the actor played by Zac Efron in the movie, oh sure, he seems to have it all. Good looks, money, fame. He's at the top of the social ladder. Yet P.T. Barnum sees behind that false exterior. He's not in the movie some typical vain, self-absorbed, arrogant narcissist. We, we come to find out in the movie that he's actually, Philip is a pretty decent, kind, and caring soul. So what exactly is this problem again? Well, the problem is Philip feels trapped by the world. He's been forced to play a part that is not his own. Society, culture, family, friends, they all have expectations of who Philip is, only that's not who he is. 
he feels caged. And, and by the way, there's just so much, so much for him to lose. So much at stake if he doesn't stay within those narrow lanes that the world has provided for him. And you can see it on his face. Right in the movie, he's accepted the prison he's in. That is, until P.T. walks in. And Barnum confronts Philip and dares him, he dares him to break free from the chains of this world and to step out and become the man who God's called him to be. Metaphorically, I think he hands Philip a set of scales and he asks him this question, which is the greatest treasure, that which you lose or that which you gain? Following me has consequences and you must decide. Back to Mark chapter five. Jairus' daughter is very, very sick. She's been getting worse for days. Mama and Jairus are both frantic. All their prestige, wealth, class is not gonna help their baby girl. She's dying and everybody knows it. They've called in the professional mourners already. Right, The crowd has told Jairus, look, your daughter's dead. Don't bother the master anymore. Her fa- his family and friends at the home, they're laughing at him, saying, you, you think that Jesus guy can do anything for your dead baby girl? And it is here and now that Jesus intervenes. And just to be clear, I want to make sure you understand, I think that Jesus engages Jairus before he's even left the house, before he, he's even met Jesus on the shores of Galilee. I could, I could hear him with his family. Wait, wait, what was that you said? You, that guy, Jesus, who was here the other day that was doing all that crazy stuff, he, he, he left, but now he's back. You're saying he's back in town, really? Hmm. And at that moment, he's got to decide what to do. Does Jairus put himself out there, risking, risking his status, his power? All these build up for so many years and lay it at the feet of some backwater country bumpkin from Nazareth. He thinks, am I willing to fight through the ridicule and scorn of my family and ask that man for help? What do I have to lose and what do I have to gain? Do I really believe that Jesus can heal my daughter? And what if he does? Well, I think that one last look at his dying daughter is all it took. I think Jairus got up and ran so fast, I bet his feet didn't even hit the dirt. He makes his way through the crowd, pushes past scores of people, and falls at the feet of Jesus. This prestigious man, who wouldn't have picked up their peanut shells just a week ago, comes before a lowly carpenter and a bunch of dirty fishermen and desperately seeks their help. You see, the world's straitjacket, it can't contain Jairus anymore. He has weighed losing the comfort and safety of this world versus the risk of following Jesus, and there is just no comparison. I think in this story, the miracle is not so much that his daughter came back to life. I think the miracle in the story is that a captive man has been set free. In Luke 4.18, Jesus says, he came to preach the good news to the poor and set the captives free, and Jairus in this moment, is finally free. So what about you? Are you a child of God still bound under captivity? 
Can I be blunt and just say, if that's the case, something, something isn't right. If you've humbled yourself before the foot of the cross and tasted the saving grace that Jesus provides, then why are you still trapped? Why do you allow yourself to be stuck inside that cage that the world has crafted just for you? That shouldn't be. Jesus has given you his spirit and power to break free just like Jairus. You see, a true encounter with Jesus frees us from the bondage of this world unto a greater purpose for his kingdom. As we say, your life is not your own. You've been bought at a tremendous price. 1 Corinthians 6, 20 says, God paid a great price for you, so use your body to honor God. So I'm asking you, please, step out. Do what you've been called to do. Your focus and actions should be heavenly, not earthly. Don't follow Satan in this world's narrative for your life. Jesus has given you a mission. He's given you a path. He's given you a job to do. So let's do it. What are you waiting for? Break free from your old life. Get up. Get going. We only have so much time to accomplish our individual calling. Jairus' example is your wake-up call. Now, that alone in and of itself is a pretty tremendous story. But Mark records something unusual, sort of a miracle inside of a miracle. You see, in stark contrast from Jairus' story arc, we see another story here, right? The story of an unknown woman. She's equally desperate for Jesus' help at the exact same moment. Now, who is this woman? Well, Mark explains that she suffered greatly for 12 years with a bleeding that just won't stop. And it has absolutely annihilated her being. She spent all of her life savings to be treated and yet no relief has come. And what's worse is that in Jewish society, she is utterly outcast and alone. You see, her continual bleeding means that she's continually unclean according to Jewish law. Not much better than maybe a leper. She's been ostracized marginalized, forgotten, and I think maybe unnamed in the story because she's unnamed in real life. The social disparity between Jairus' situation and the woman's situation cannot be greater. But across this chasm of social inequality is a singular thread of commonality. They both need Jesus. And I can hear her singing too. I'm not a stranger to the dark. Hide away, they say, because we don't want your broken parts. I've learned to be ashamed of all my scars. Run away, they say. No one will love you as you are. Letty Lutz, also known as the bearded lady in the movie, and played, by the way, gloriously by Kiala Settle, she is this woman in Mark chapter 5, portrayed on the silver screen. I mean, when Hugh Jackman as PT finds her, she's literally hiding in plain sight. Lady is an anathema. She's an abomination. You sense that just in the look in her eyes, how the Lord has completely, just completely discarded one of God's special creatures as garbage. And the parallel between Letty and this woman in the crowd is just so obvious my, my heart aches for her. And not just because she's deemed to be nothing. The, 
I think that the real tragedy in the story is that she's accepted her place. She's accepted it. It is what it is. I'm nothing, I'm worthless, and that's all I'll ever be, and I'm fine with it. And in her desperation to be healed under this warped sense of worthlessness, she won't even bother Jesus. She says, you know, I'll just, I'll just reach out, touch his cloak, and then hopefully be healed. And then I'll just go back to my life of worthlessness like it was before. You know, God's bringing these two people together at this moment. And Mark recording it for us, I, I just don't think it's an accident. You know, Jairus and this woman's situation are exactly the same. Our world, our social order, just has tremendous forces and pressure to just, come on guys, just, just stay normal. Stay inside the lanes. Don't rock the boat. Status quo. And you know, I also notice her reaction is actually the opposite of Jairus's. You see, if you notice, Jairus was willing to risk everything. But the woman was willing to risk very, very little because she deemed herself to be worthy of very, very little. And so she reaches out her hand, oblivious and invisible to everyone in the crowd, by the way, touches the cloak of Jesus, and she's immediately healed. Now, please do me a favor. Don't slap your knee. Say, wow, what a great lesson in faith and healing. Close the book. Lesson learned. We're done here. Let's go get a coffee. Because we're not done. Mark wasn't done. If you see, he, he continues the story. He doesn't stop. And I want you to see the most crucial part of this story next. So pay attention. Jesus next says, who touched me? Who touched me? Now, if you notice the disciples in the crowd, they all scoff at this question. Like, Jesus, are you kidding me? There's a million people here. And Jairus, we've got a job to do. Jairus' daughter needs healed. We gotta go. But Jesus, he won't let it go. He won't let it go. If you look at verse 32, it says, Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Why? Why would Jesus not let it go? And why is this story told to us today? Well, I think, I think it's because this woman... I think she was satisfied to just slink back into the same old life of worthlessness that she'd come from. She was okay with being invisible. And Jesus stopped because he said, no way. That's, that's not going to happen. He's commanding her to be known and to be somebody. He's basically saying, no, no, you don't get to experience my power. You don't get to receive the indwelling of my Holy Spirit. You don't get to receive the salvation that only I can provide and then go back to the life that you lived before. That is not acceptable. The world must know you. The world must see you. The world must hear you. A life changed by Jesus is not to be hidden in the dark. It must be exposed, lived, and known. And her story is known. 2,000 years later, it's known because of the, the purpose of her life in that moment. Her life was meant to be an example for us this very day. And I'm speaking about a real woman whom history had cast aside into oblivion and Jesus said, no, that is not acceptable for a child of mine. 
So what about you? Are you a child of God still living in obscurity? And if so, I will very, very, very humbly stand in the place of Jesus today and tell you that no, that is not acceptable for a child of his. Just like this woman in Mark, if you've been completely healed by your faith in Jesus Christ, are the crowds of this world hearing and seeing you? Do they know your story? Do they know who Jesus is because of the words you say and the life you live? God has created each of us with a part to play in his master plan of redemption. And it is unacceptable for you to live a life of of obscurity and inaction. So step into the light and make a difference. He demands it. You have a part to play that only you can play. You have a role to fill that only you can fill. We here at Impact need you. The world needs you. God needs you. And ultimately, that is the question at hand. Who do you think you are? I mean, you may be Jairus, one of the wealthy, elite, you have it all, social standing. You may be the woman, alone, marginalized, invisible. Or maybe, just maybe, you may be one of the unknown named in the crowd. You don't even know this Jesus guy yet. You're you're just trying to stay in your lane, keep the status quo, don't rock that boat. You like your cage. How does this story change things for you? You know, Jesus is always willing to break us free and move us in the direction of his will and the direction of what's best for us if you allow him to. Because guess what? You have a say in all this. Which leads me to one last question. Are you going to break free and be heard? Yes, you can choose to resist the Holy Spirit's call, but both Jairus and this woman, they took that first step to meet Jesus face to face. And like them, will you allow Jesus to free you into becoming the person that God needs you to be for his glory? The choice is up to you. Mark chapter five is more than just about healing and faith. It's about the fact that an encounter with Jesus is always transformational. He compels us to fulfill our purpose for his kingdom. He compels you to make a difference. He compels you to be known. Will the world hear your story? You know, as we close, I just want to, I found it interesting. In the gospel, there's about 40 recorded miracles by Jesus. And in most of them, they're not named. Why was, do you think Jairus was named in Mark? Why do we know his name? Well, remember how I said that all the folks of Capernaum would have known this guy, you know, his social status, his standing at the synagogue. Everybody knew, knew who Jairus was, him and his family. Well, do you know who that includes? Peter, James, John. Like most of the Jews living in Capernaum, they would have known Jairus. They would have known his family. And I personally think, later in the story, that's why Jesus first takes only Peter, James, and John into the room with the girl, with the mom and dad, to be healed. And I can picture Mark hearing Peter tell this story and going, oh, that's, that's special. That's one I've got to write down. I've got to include that story for sure. And I imagine... 
I can kind of imagine that as Mark traveled around for the next 30, 40 years as a missionary, you've got to believe that at some point he wound up back in Capernaum, right? And I bet one afternoon, he had a free, free afternoon, and he started thinking, you know, Jairus' daughter, she, she was about, she's about my age. And he went and he found, he knocked on her door. And she came to the door and he, he explained who he was. And I could see her give him that smile. You know that smile? Like, you know, I've told this story like a thousand times. But yeah, Mark, come on in. I'll tell it one more time. And Jairus' daughter and Mark probably shared stories well into the night about this incredible man, Jesus, who changed their life forever. And it's not been easy, but boy, they are sure glad that he did. So what's your story? And who are you willing to tell, even if it's for the thousandth time? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for this gift you've given to us of your word. And we love to read and, and hear and picture the things that happen because it, it's so telling for us today. Lord, this life is not easy. It's been a challenge. It's been difficult. Nobody here is, is fooled by how difficult life can be. And God, but just thank you for being there for us. Help this message and your word to be an encouragement today for us to take that step to move forward, to go that extra mile for your kingdom. Although life is easy, we are just so thankful and blessed for your son Jesus who died on that cross to free us from our chains. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.